0: Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the dwarves, who I spoke to very recently. Well, mainly their main man, or singer and uh, songwriter. It is is the one Ernie Blagg. To find out more about life, love and poetry, he's had a very prolific life and career, both in music and also as an author, and has recently brought out a solo album as well, titled Introducing Ralph Champagne. So you're going to find out more about that and much, much more in this interview. But after several minutes of interesting but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years and that musical moment that changed everything. Anyway, Blag, tell us more, tell us now.
1: I uh, I come from a pretty musical family, in terms of them being fans, you know. So as a kid, it was a lot of musicals. Um, I remember being in an Oliver, and uh, Babes in Arms, a Jesus Christ Superstar. I was in some different musicals and stuff, and my and my parents would take us to musicals uh, and stuff, and even like Gilbert and Sullivan and kind of early stuff so that was sort of uh you know there was that and then my brother was a big fan of like very progressive jazz so i listened to like a lot of john coltrane and and roland kirk and miles davis and that type of stuff yes Um, and then of course there was just whatever was on the radio when i was a little kid you know when i was a little kid we had what they called am radio here in america and it was Mixed format, just whatever was a hit, you know, so you'd hear like the OJs, Backstabbers, and then you'd hear Elton John, Crocodile Rock and whatever. So uh, um, my tastes were very eclectic and all over the place. Then when I started high school, I met a guy who turned me on to sort of three big things that got me going, which was 60s garage music, uh, 50s rockabilly, and... Uh, hardcore through right. uh, the decline of Western Civilization movie.
0: Yes, and excellent. So,
1: yeah, I sort of got into all three of those things at the same time, and I kind of view them all as the same thing. You know, it's all just rock and roll to me.
0: Yes, and that's amazing. So your parents, because sometimes, you know, parents can be a bit hit and miss with their musical taste. So what was their gig in life? How come they were so kind of interested in musicals and, and music? Because mostly... Know, like- I was going to my say, basically parents my, are sort of working, sort of, you know, quite working class. So sometimes they don't get that much chance. But um, yes, who knows?
1: Well, my parents both came from very working class backgrounds, but they were college educated and pretty smart people. And my dad had a group when he was in school. So they were he was big on, you know, kind of the American songbook. Right. you know, kind of the songs of the 20s and 30s and 40s. I mean, I kind of come from that last generation of people where maybe your parents weren't rock and roll. Yes. By the time rock and roll came around, you know, my my folks were not in, into that, although my mom liked things like the Beatles or the Bee Gees, kind of whatever was big. Yeah, My dad was very stuck on the old stuff. And basically I, I just never stopped liking it. I mean, that was the music that I heard. And so I liked it. I didn't I didn't really do the rebellion thing from that form. I sort of just added things. You know, So I was into all kinds of music and kind of regular pop music. And then I just added shit like rockabilly and 60s and hardcore and then hip hop.
0: We loved early hip hop. It's interesting because you mentioned Jesus Christ Superstar. I know Ian Gillan was on the first ever album that came out in probably nineteen seventy two. Yeah, I
1: had that record. Which, yeah, he was know, from Deep Purple, right?
0: He was Deep Purple's main man. Yeah. So yes, it was good. And and to be honest, you know those songs are stunning. You know the power chords, the kind of emotive vocals. It it was all there. So um, so you discovered your voice quite early on in life. You didn't have any problems standing out and singing at the at an early age.
1: Um, well, no, cause in, in the musicals, I never had a part. I was just chorus. So I never really, it was, it was when I got a rock and roll band when I was about 14, 15 that I, you know, started being comfortable with standing up there and singing and, and basically writing songs, you know, that was also a big part of it, um, it was just kind of, uh, you know, I think that's part of what brings you into rock and roll. I kind of realized I I was not going to be good enough to like be in musicals or be, uh, you know, have people hire me to kind of sing other stuff or whatever. It was going to, if I was going to get to sing, it was going to be what I wrote, you know? Yes,
0: absolutely. You were never going to play Jesus, were you?
1: Right. (laughs) I was never going to play Jesus, unfortunately. But the, you know, the musicals were fun because they kind of, you know, you got to like kiss the girls before the show, you know, and it was all very intimate, you know. Yes. <laughs> it was like, wow, we're putting on a show and this is great. And we're, you know, so that kind of brought me into uh, just performing, you know.
0: Yes. I think Meatloaf had a similar, slightly, you know, experience in his very early years being in sort of, yeah, sort of musicals as well. I think, I didn't know. he, Rocky he
1: Horror and, Picture Show is what kind of put uh, him on the map.
0: Yes, this is true. He played was it Eddie the character? What was the first gig you ever he, went to? He
1: played Eddie, and he also in the in the play also played Doctor. Scott, which was played by the same person in the play. but then in the movie, there was different people.
0: oh, yes, I know he yeah, he I was, was really
1: big on that. yeah, I was really big on uh Rocky horror Picture show. Yes. kind of a lot of things people might not associate with me, you know, but um, what can I say?
0: Well, you know, I had an older brother who was seven years older than me. And so he was he was the the generation who loved prog rock. So I have this kind of whole thing with, you know, yes and Genesis and Wishbone Ash. And then the even the solo work of Rick Wakeman and Steve Hackett. I but I was young, you know, I'd I sneak into it. Pardon?
1: My condolences to you. I
0: know. There you go. That's it. But that was all, <laughs> he was just perfect for that age. You know, when punk came along, he absolutely hated it. You know, so that wasn't his thing, you know, because it didn't have a. You know, yeah, the
1: closest I got to that was like Frank Zappa, which I mm-hmm. guess is prog in a sense, but it was more comedy novelty. To me, it was more like a, an interesting, funny thing.
0: Yes, I think I think British English prog is a bit different. It comes from a different class, really.
1: Yeah, what was it's your very serious and I don't know. I, I never really cared about that kind of music. I mean, I, I find it hard to eliminate any kind of music out of hand because I think any music has enough depth to it that there's some people who love it and they really get all the nuances of it. You know, prog for me was just didn't feel like rock and roll and it didn't feel particularly interesting either. No, this is true.
0: I don't don't go back and listen. I listen to Jethro Tull occasionally, but that's, that's just kind of, yeah. I don't know if you, but there are certain albums or artists that are very seasonal. So people like Jethro Tull, I I start to play when it becomes wintry in Britain. So yeah, I mean, it was
1: sort of Aqualung, I think was the only tune I knew by, by him, but by them, I guess.
0: So what what was your first gig you went to?
1: Um you know it depends how you reckon it I again I, we went to a lot of musicals and stuff I can't even remember for that and and when I was in middle school my brother took me to some kind of interesting like Indian music like uh I saw Ravi Shankar and Zakir Hussain and I saw you know the three guitars with John McLaughlin and Al Di and Paco de Lucía and I, I saw Stan Getz Um uh, wow and- yeah. On. I yeah, he he was into different types of things, you know. But my first rock show really was Frank Zappa in 1980 at the Uptown, um, right in Chicago. So that that was that. I mean, but you got to remember too, like by the time I finished high school, you know, I grew up outside of Chicago, so I or I went to high school outside of Chicago, so I had I saw every group. I mean, every group like Minor Threat, MDC, Black Flag, Replacements, you know, uh, uh, you know, the Ramones, the Cramps, just pretty much every group, even Spinal Tap. You know, I just <laughs> I went out a lot and just saw a lot of music, you know, yes. into it.
0: Behind me, I have to say that 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 pre, before the the hardcore bands, the the one the ones that you saw with your brother sounds amazing. I don't think anybody I've ever interviewed saw such a roster of incredible acts. It's in weird,
1: yeah. I mean, my I'm telling you, my my folks had real taste in music, and my brother too. They just weren't professional about it. They they um, and really, in a lot of ways, I was kind of the least musical. You know, I think those guys like read music and could write arrangements and would play trumpet and stuff like that. I I played saxophone and I wasn't very good at it. Nothing really made sense until I heard the Ramones. Right. And then when I heard the Ramones, I was like, "Oh fuck, yeah, okay." And that was something that I could do, you know, like my ears were tuned to very sophisticated stuff, but I'm not, you know, talent-wise able to execute that. So it had to be rock and roll you know it had to be punk rock it it was uh that was just the thing i had to do
0: Yes, because in, in, I mean, the UK, you know, it's a, a simplistic narrative, but there was the, you know, the punk period, there was the post-punk world, then the sort of early 80s, there was New Romantics, there was a sort of a bit of, I don't know, anarcho-punk came along, there was indie pop, you know, with bands like the Smiths. What was it like for you during that kind of period? Did you sort of, because you were leaving high school at this point, weren't you? So I just wondered what you were thinking about sort of forming a band and what sound you were going to create.
1: Um well 60s garage is what really captured me. Again, like I was starting high school in 1980, 81, the pop music around us was like sort of keyboard synth based, drum machine based. That was kind of the new thing and my ears were not attuned to that. I didn't like it at all. I've since come around to liking some of it, but really not much. It wasn't to me that wasn't a strong period of pop but it was a very strong period for underground music including punk rock mostly and and the kind of new versions of rockabilly or 60s or kind of art rock
0: yes um, absolutely we we yes the the world of there was the rockats weren't there, who who was sort of in new york at that time with smutty smith and people like that and then you had the uh, what the stray cats as well came out as well
1: yeah, the stray cats were quite good, but again, kind of an example of that cleaner side. I mean, to me, rockabilly is what morphed into hardcore. It's the same beat, it's the same chords. It's just the tempo is different, so you do different things with it.
0: Yes. So, oh. so, so, did you stay on to sort of college? How does it work? Because in the UK, we have sixteen-year-olds leave, then eighteen when you do A-levels, and then degrees. What it's like yeah. for for American?
1: Um yeah, after high school I was not very motivated to go to college and so I just w- moved to Boston and got a job and I wound up cleaning toilets at MIT. <laughs> which gave <laughs> me a quick lesson in class relations in the United States. You know, you're either you're either shitting in that toilet or you're cleaning that toilet.
0: So when did you decide that's it? I'm not going to do this for too much longer. I'm going to form a band. Or was it a kind of a a collective effort?
1: I already had a band in high school. We had played our first show, Suburban Nightmare. By the time I was 16 or 17, we played at the Cubby Bear Lounge, and I I always had a plan to go with my band. You know, like we sort of had a thing going on, me and Salt Peter and he who cannot be named, just. Different guys who kind of had a musical vision, and we were interested in sort of synthesizing fifties and sixties and different stuff. Where I was, you know, we kind of piled it in together. So, I mean, I I always wanted to have a band. I tried to get one going in Boston, but it didn't work. Then I went to college for a year uh, in New York, and that was very interesting. I always kind of liked New York a lot, and I I had a lot of fun doing that. New York in the eighties was very decadent and it was pretty fun um, yes blimey and there, there there were different things to do and I, I learned some about writing I took some good like I knew I was going to quit and go have a band but I wanted to do it well if I was going to go there and I liked to write a lot so I just took all writing classes and wrote fiction and you know it was fun and I learned some stuff you know but mainly like I knew that I was just a rock and roller. I didn't want to sit around in college with people. I had a very low opinion of them. I mean, looking <laughs> back, I kind of wish maybe I would have hung out and finished. Um, I think some different doors might have opened to me, but I was kind of a aggressively, you know, I like to do what I like to do, which was play music at high, fuck.
0: Yes. And so uh, I that- really
1: kind of oriented everything toward that. And and so. I wound up just doing menial jobs for the next 10 years and playing rock and roll. And and uh, so it was wasn't the- until my second record deal with Epitaph that I was able to just like have the band. I mean, prior to that, it was like everybody in the band would work and I would work and you just kind of try and keep it together. And then every time you get together and go out on the road, you'd lose your job or you'd lose your apartment or you'd lose your girl. Some disaster would befall you, you know.
0: <laughs> so the first band you had the sub was it the suburban nightmare. That brought you brought out one EP, a a, a hard nights, a hard days nightmare. Was that right?
1: Yes, hard what? days nightmare. That record's worth a lot of money now. I mean, it's very obscure. Most of it appears on the our compilation album, Lick It. Before. Right. I just like put out all our old 60s garage kind of stuff. On that lickit thing. It's kind of a trip for people when they finally get around to it and they they kind of hear where we came from that we started as a more like sixties psychedelic rock and roll kind of group. And
0: yes. So what was the more hardcore? So when the Dwarf skate got together and you started performing, did you instantly have quite an impact on stage? Was your stage show always very confrontational and quite shocking?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I think the short answer is no, you know, we hadn't worked that part out, but we were very confrontational just as human beings, and it was a kind of a confrontational time. So we get in fights at clubs, we get thrown out of clubs, we'd get in fights with people at clubs or the management of clubs. When we got to play with the cramps, finally, by then we were the dwarves, you know, we got thrown out in Chicago. We never really got along that well like I think with us it was more like we we played music a certain way but at some point we kind of realized that we were punks you know yeah like we just didn't get along with other people and we just had a fucked up trip around us people were high and chicks were weird and it was very <laughs> odd
0: God, that sounds like you had an amazing time. Were you playing places like CBGB's and the Mud Club and and uh, Max's Kansas City? Which which venues sort of would put you on?
1: No, Max's had closed by the time we started touring. Dora's first tour was around 87, 88. Um I went to CBGB's some when I lived in New York. But by the time the dwarves got out there, we played CBGB's record store and we just threw a bunch of records around in it. So they kind of were predisposed against us. Then we did a show the next week and, you know, I jumped right into somebody's table. I was high on acid. My head was all bleeding. They had a picture in the village voice and it said bleeding Jesus under, <laughs> under the caption. It was very like... We were just a very aggro outfit. I think Hugh, cannot be named, had a gas mask on. I mean, we were just very strange. And when we did that, they just stopped the show about five minutes in at CBGB's. And it was like, fuck you. You'll never play here again. and <laughs> That kind of deal. <laughs> and actually, we never did. Like something like 25 years later or something, you know supposedly all new management and different people. And we were supposed to play there and I was all stoked to do it. Like, yeah, I returned to CBGB's. But in the last minute, I guess they looked at their master list of everybody that they didn't like. And they, and they said, fuck you guys, you can't play here. So (laughs) when they closed, I was like the only person kind of laughing, like, oh, well, we outlasted CBGB's, you know, (laughs) it was a great place, but you know, for me, it's just kind of part of my, mythology you know how we just kind of ran roughshod over over everything you know
0: and was that the same with every place that you played you know every show was a confrontational slightly anything could happen yeah experience I mean I
1: think I think it was confrontational partly because I wasn't getting what I wanted musically I didn't know how to do it I'd never had a producer I had some talented people around me, but nobody was very organized in in these kind of ways. Like when you were in a punk band back then, you kind of thought of it more like this is something I do on the side. I was the only one that was like, Oh, okay, we're gonna do this, but I was lacking in a lot of abilities that you need, you know. Like maybe if all of us would have sort of been geared toward let's make this work, some some more good shit might have happened. But it was more like they were working their day jobs and Working shit in when they could, and we would go out on the road, then get fired and whatever. You know what I mean? <laughs> and like, you know, I was trying to run it as intelligently as I could, but I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. And yes. that included sounding good live, or or having the right gear, or making a good record. It wasn't yeah. until I started meeting people that really took making records seriously that I was able to make the records that I wanted to. Right, There's always a weird schizophrenia with the dwarves. Like live, we kind of, that was more what we were like. It was just kind of chaotic and weird with flashes of smart sometimes, but it was mostly real kind of dumb and basic, right? And then there were these records that we had in our heads. We all were record heads we knew shit, but we just didn't have the ability to kind of bring that out. You know, I'd have these ideas, but it was very hard to execute.
0: Yes. And then finally,
1: you know, I, when I met Eric Valentine in the in the mid '90s, it was somebody who understood my vision and had chops for for uh, uh, production, you know. And I had met people before that were smart and did some cool shit. Jack andino um, from sub, you know, the sub pop world in Seattle, you know, he helped me some, and and you know, uh, but it was always these near misses. like. We thought we were going to work with butch Vig, but it turned out to kind of just be his studio and his assistant or whatever and the guy was pretty good you know but you didn't exactly get butch Vig, you know what i mean like it was i was trying to make a great record but i didn't i didn't really cross paths with anybody that would help me do that till my late 20s I, I met eric valentine and it was before he became a famous producer he was just a guy with a studio Right, but I could tell right away that he was very talented, and I, my prediction proved true.
0: True, indeed. So, with your debut album, Horror Stories, did you have all the material written, record, you know, rehearsed and demoed before yes. you went in? So that was all there from sort of in and written out. and to-
1: rehearsed, not demoed. We never knew enough to demo. The right, we just made records. Like we went in there and recorded to tape, and just was like, "Here's our record." We didn't even really know enough to make demos, except for Saul Peter, who would make four-track versions of his own songs. Right. Um, Which looking back is kind of cool, and he wound up putting out a comp of of those strange demos that he'd done. Pete was always a great songwriter, um, and he who too, um, but, uh, uh, and that's kind of one thing that's never changed with the Dwarves, even to this day everyone who's in the group is a songwriter and generally has their own group, which I think makes for a more interesting band and more interesting records.
0: Yes, absolutely. It's um, always good to put a mix. Did the lineup change when you did your follow-up album, um, Blood, Guts, and Pussy?
1: The lineup changed a little bit every time, one way or the other. Uh, and this is where you sort of get into the strange, again, another strange combination with the dwarves that people stick with it for thousands of years. You know, like I just got back from a tour of Arizona and down in LA and Salt Peter was there. I mean, he and I went to high school together, met as freshmen. So, I mean, we've been playing music together just for an ungodly length of time and writing songs together and doing shit. But at the same time, you know, he's kind of come in and out of the band Cannot be named, came in and out of the band. You know, Nick Oliveri, who went on to do a lot of interesting groups with other people, he's been playing with me off and on for 30 years. You know, Fresh Prince of Darkness, you know, maybe 26, 27 years. So, I mean, there's people who've been in the band forever and it's very much a tight knit like group of guys. But at the same time, there's just been these wholesale lineup changes. Where you get totally different people playing him right? And the only, and the only uh, uh, you know, constant is me,
0: <laughs> which is good. I mean, during the, the that late '80s period, I mean, again, you know, sort of, I suppose, in in the UK, I mean,
1: that was when we came to people's attention. Vaj moore joined the band, and he was a super aggressive, like drummer. Great and kind of natural ability, but kind of an untutored drummer guy, which was perfect for us. Yes, and he played real straightforward, but he also was big on like Satan stuff and voodoo stuff, and was kind of had that whole weird element and loved to mythologize himself. And I love to mythologize the band, and and you know, so that was a cool combination. The blood guts guys was Salt Peter. He who cannot be named, me and Vag Moore and that yes. sort of that classic. What was, what was the
0: atmosphere like with this your, with this kind of lineup, the four piece lineup? Was it was it a good vibe at that stage?
1: I, you know, I don't know if you could really talk about the dwarves in terms of good vibes. You know, I enjoyed it. It was very funny. We laughed a lot. You know, we always laughed a lot, and and uh, I love those guys, and still still do. I mean, yes. I still,
0: I mean, because uh, at that stage, who 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 designed the album cover? You know, whose idea was the album cover on that? Because that's album something.
1: cover was really my idea, and I was there at the shoot, and it was, but it was based on a famous cover by a, a group called Samhain that was after the Misfits. They had a record called Initium, where it's like they're covered in blood and it drips in a certain way, and so I just got naked women to do that. That was my variation on it, like the dwarves. In my mind, we're like a more sexualized like Ramones or Misfits or, you know,
0: yes, or like you...
1: cramps meets that. And and so we went for the titty photography, but made it arty, you know, with help from friends like Michael Levine, who was a great photographer in New York. And he that photo helped to kind of sum up what that record was that, yes, it was dumb and very gut level, but it also there was brilliance to it. And yes, it was that way too. You know, it's like very much, you know. And and that record, Blood Guts and Pussy, it was just a minimalist record. It's made to be exactly what it is. You know, Did I you... think in the history of the dwarves we've had a bunch of good records, but that one is exactly what it's supposed to be. Young and good looking is exactly what it's supposed to be. And in my opinion, Must Die is exactly what it's supposed to be. But that one didn't really catch on in the same way that Blood Guts in its own way did. And and Good Looking especially did. That was sort of our most popular and kind of pop punk oriented record. But I always thought of us as pop and punk and all those things, you know.
0: Yes, well, that's that's a, that's a good combination to have. Did did write in that material? Did you have a sort of a not a concept or or a sort of a, like a prog album? But did was there a kind of a theme that ran through the whole narrative of of every song on that album? From there was um, back seat of my car to motherfucker.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was such a bleak time in my life. I think I had a really fucked up relationship junkies and people were dying and people were quitting the group and everything was always strange you know and that was just a weird era and i was still working and i was angry as fuck um i was angry that i had to work i was angry that you know other bands were getting you know management and record deals and we could never quite you know figure out what the fuck we were doing you know so it was just a huge well up of anger. And I, I, I wrote most of those lyrics. There were a few that were written by Saul Peter and a few that were written by uh, He Who Cannot Be Named. Um, but for the most part, it was that was kind of a cry out from me. And the next one that was like a cry out from me was, was Young Good Looking, where I was like, fuck, you know, now I've been making records for a while. and I'm even kind of notorious for it. And once again, a whole group of people had come and left. They had to do other things in their life, make some money, do some shit, have their relationships, whatever they were doing. And I was like, fuck, I still haven't made the record I want to hear. Mm. I, I made records that I knew were cool by that time, but I still hadn't made the record that appealed to me to hear. And that didn't just fill up my stomach with... That feeling hardcore gives you, but that also appealed to my ears and said, "Oh, I would like to just listen to this." I hadn't really made that record yet until young you Lookin'. at which point that was like, "Wow, you know, and that one, um, you know, was a new lineup of people. You had Nick Oliveri who'd come from Caius and that world. Dwarves had taken them on their first tour. So Nick's bass playing comes into play at that point, as does guitar playing with holy smokes who had more of a heavy metal approach and more percussive it brought a new element in that was different and um you know so we kept some essential elements but yeah the the lineup shifted and the whole brain trust shifted and uh, that turned out to be our most successful record so then that so then we got the deal with epitaph and that had songs like Everybody's Girl and One Time Only. And so these songs were a lot different than the Blood Gut songs, which were more gut level, tended to not have pre-choruses, tended to not have background vocals. we gotten to this point where I was like, well, I made that album and then I made a few variations on that album. Let's make this album. And it was just a whole new bunch of people. And that fortunately was around the time I met Eric Valentine. And you know he didn't pre-produce that record with me at all. That was always kind of left to the band to it figure is. out what the songs were. We never really had production help in that way. But we finally had a guy who could mix and listen and knew what was in tune and what was in time and how to play around and the margins of whatever genre was on the radio. Eric knew he could duplicate it, including hip hop or anything else. He'd already made those records. He was making records for Paris. And then at that same time that he was working on, you know, looking with me, he was demoing the shit that turned out to be the Third Eye Blind record and the Smash Mouth record. So right. he was making big hit records at exactly the same time. And I just kind of got lucky and watched him do it over a period of a couple of years. Yeah, got to do some punk records with him and just watch how he did it. You know, I threw bands in there like FYP, like just hardcore bands. Yeah. And, Oh, that was Eric's only experience with that. He can do anything. You just have to throw it to him and trust, you know.
0: Yes, absolutely. What was your experience like being on sub-pop records as well? Because this was obviously you were there at the golden period where grunge and the Seattle scene was kind of all over the shop, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I like to say that it was like starving to death in a really cool suit. <laughs> you know you felt cool that you were around this thing and people were paying attention to it it's just nobody was doing anything for us right so it was difficult you know because it just was tantalizingly close like you were like fuck if somebody did something here maybe something could happen but you know nobody quite knew what to what to do
0: no, Carl. Oh, that's uh, that's so frustrating. And what was your sort of live shows like at that stage? Were you, was it still quite sort of confrontational, or had they sort of calmed down a bit?
1: I don't think we'd calmed down. But what happened was the cat was out of the bag, and so it wasn't confrontational in the old way, which was you've never heard this, you don't know what this is, and these guys are in your town fucking with you, and you think they might be taking the piss out of you. You think they might be, you know, fucking. Making fun of your girlfriend, you, you might be busting your gear or whatever the fuck it was, and so like that was that side of it. By the time Blood Guts comes out, people start talking about us and we're in all the magazines, and it becomes hip to play with us, <clears throat> and so we get to play with a bunch of cool bands, you know, whether it's like Horton Heat and Super Suckers, and you know, some little festivals with you know we get get to play with Nirvana and. You know, we and then we'd already played with, you know, a lot of bands at the Gilman Street scene. No, uh, you know, No Effects, Green Day, Offspring, you know. Yes. So we're, we kind of have our toe in both of those scenes, but we're not really established in either one. The grunge people don't like us. We're too much like a hardcore punk band. The hardcore punk people don't know us. We didn't go to high school in California or in New York, you know. We're not like... We're just an odd group that fits into these different genre things, right? So being at Sub I mean, being at Sub Pop was cool and it gave us an advantage where it was able to get our name in. And even more so when we finally got to Epitaph at the end of the 90s, you'd get on, you know, but, but Sub Pop, like they never put us on their compilation records. Kind like. of left us out i could never understand that we were we made three records with them we were on the label for three or four years they were just always kind of ashamed and weird with us <laughs> and and you know um with epitaph we were on a punkorama record still probably the most popular thing we ever did
0: people yes. hear that
1: song and they react like oh i remember that song i Ooh. know that band. It's like yeah because you didn't buy the record but you had this comp you know, so those labels could do a lot for you in terms of plugging you into a system and then from there the rest was kind of up to you. The labels didn't didn't do much and we didn't know, you know, we never had like marketing or management or any of that kind of stuff yes.
0: did you because because we all saw the was it woodstock too was it the in 1999 this sort of the rise of these kind of very heavy kind of bands that started to i mean on that roster it was you know i don't know if you've seen the film but it's quite you know it's like going Hang to on war second. oh there you go he's back don't go do, 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 do. And relax what about that. Yes, yeah, because there, there's that kind of quite a heavy scene that's building up during the '90s, isn't there? Those that I don't kind know of
1: what bands are on that? Um,
0: well, I suppose you. there's the Red Red Hot Chili Peppers, and there was Marilyn Manson, and and sort of very, I don't know, Limp Bizkit. There was those kind of bands. This kind of very heavy thrash rap you know lots of kind of aggression male aggression and and i do not the film highlights where basically it all gets out of hand and it all kind of gets a a massive riot on days one two and three and it ends in sort of looking like armageddon a riot
1: the dwarves were not invited to you know but yeah i mean all of those bands kind of hit me in different ways i think that the mid 80s through the through the nineties was an interesting time for music and a bunch of genres kind of came up. I mean, Marilyn Manson was sort of a secondary version of that ministry killing joke genre of heavy guitars and heavy drums, you know, that was what is now called industrial. Mm. You know? And, and so being in that genre at that time was a smart move that, he had an amazing live act. I mean, it looked like the Nuremberg rallies or something. It was <laughs> insane, and and the whole, you know, I I remember being taken to that show pretty early by their publicist at, at Interscope, and you know, it was uh, there was a lot of resources put behind that, and it, you know, it I, I, it was great in sort of every way except musically. Red Hot Chili Peppers, I think it was a similar thing. They were cute. Girls liked them. There was a whole thing to it. Um, they just, it was never anything that I wanted to, to listen to. Um, uh, and what was the other group that you well, mentioned? Well, there was Limp
0: Bizkit Limp Biz- as
1: well. <laughs> yeah, so that was like that form of heavy metal that had processed drums and uh you know started doing like i think they had a track with dj Premier and stuff so it was kind of that hybrid that started to come up at that time rap rock whatever it is kind of you know the beastie boys first record you know what sort of grew out of that yes genre of of hip-hop as opposed to the other forms of it yeah i mean
0: and I suppose there was Rage and, you know, Against the I, Machine as well, wasn't there? There was the other Rage Against the Machine. There yeah, was the other...
1: so Rage Against the Machine, of all the bands that you just mentioned, I, I thought they were quite good live. They were amazing. I mean, I saw them live, and they were really quite remarkable. And they had that big sound of, like, it was heavy metal guitar for the Heshers and the Stoners, but then the drums were big and kind of hip-hoppy, but it still felt like there was a live guy there you know and that um you know that was a good band live and i thought their records were good too it tapped into a certain thing you know it was like a sort of politically conscious kind of backpack rap lyrics that were coming up at that time you know mixed with that kind of conventional led zeppelin-y guitar and and you know big nirvana meets hip-hop kind of drums you know
0: yes absolutely it was, so it was, as we were trucking up to the millennium bug you came out with um, come clean so did you start recording this kind of 98 99 time was this was when the right we, and like was-
1: over you was the song where i kind of answered the limp biscuit groups and stuff like that and processed the drums and did like double kick and it was semi-industrial whatever but then it had a big chorus yes kind of there was a lot of genre hopping on, on Come Clean. That's really where that modern version of the Dwarves starts. And we start just jumping around to different genres. We do Salt Lake City, which is like our sort of more most pop punk song. And we even get Dexter Holland from The Offspring to sing. So there's a recognizable pop voice that you know that you've heard in there. And then we do Massacre, where it was a straight hip hop track. You know, but done in a, you know, like a hip hop diss track where we, you know, make fun of a bunch of people that we found ridiculous. And, you know, yeah, it was like hitting all these different genres, fuck eat and fuck you up Um, or no way that wasn't on that record. It was, uh, yeah, River City Rapist was on there, which was very hardcore and kind of nasty lyrically. So, like, we kind of didn't drop any of the genres, you know, and we started with How It's Done, which was very pop, you know, so... everything on that record was designed to like was some kind of a cinematic scope of a record with a lot of little things in between and bits it was kind of my attempt to make a dr dre record or something like that
0: excellent there you go this is still on epitaph records
1: yeah although we left shortly after that record came out so they you know and it was funny i mean we yeah, those records are kind of bookended as the Epitaph period, but they came out on Recess and Theologian before Epitaph and Come Clean. I have now and release. So it's, you know, um, that period for Epitaph was kind of a weird one. They they sort of signed a lot of bands and then they kind of got rid of all those bands and kind of circled the wagons around where they would started, you know, which right. probably made sense. For them but they didn't really do anything with either of those records for me except like i say getting us on those Punkarama comps was kind of a big deal and people remember those songs yes um, you know so epitaph was very important to us in that way and subpop in terms of kind of putting us on the map but in both cases the labels weren't really interested in us at all we just <laughs> kind of careened in and careened out.
0: Yes. And and the album cover, whose idea was that one? It's a, it really, it's a bit Roxy Music, isn't it? In places.
1: Yeah, my two big influences for album covers were Roxy Music, a band I never listened to, but I love their covers. And the Ohio Players, a oh. band I did listen to and really love their covers. Um, and of course, like you know, whipped cream and other delights, those kind of record covers always appealed to me. So yeah, Come Clean was, you know, supposed to be the cleaned up version of Blood Guts and Pussy. So it's black instead of white, instead of blood and grime, you get, you know, bubbles and clean. Um,
0: you know, Yes, absolutely. It's all, it's all good. So as we get into the new decade, does the lineup change again of the band or is it getting a bit more steady at this stage?
1: Well, He Who comes in again, and we co-write several songs. Um, and he becomes an anchor of it again salt peter's sort of out for a while now and we get various five-piece lineups um you know with some players doing more in terms of actually playing on records and stuff the big one being the fresh prince of darkness right yes he comes in and becomes kind of the the voicing of You know, there's the he who, which is our early guitar, very hectic and Ramonesy. And then there's that sort of Holy Smokes period. So uh, when the Fresh Prince comes in, he kind of emulates that that period with the tighter, more heavy metal guitar playing. And now the Dwarves records sort of become those those two styles of guitar trading off. The more heavy metal, rhythmically precise one with the more action, you know, ramones kind of straightforward one and and we start mixing and matching those in different ways and we genre hop more and more and we start doing different different things to drums and stuff um various drummers come in but at this point josh freeze comes in and you know around the time we make must die and he plays on a number of those tracks and there are other drummers on there too gnarly watts and wreck tom guys that had toured with the band and played with us were able to integrate that in but the more pop songs it's like once i find josh he's sort of the irreplaceable drummer and we had been friends for a while at that point now you know he's played on the last five six dwarves records you know he's just got such an advanced sense of what a record's supposed to sound like and now he's in the foo fighters right so i mean everybody always knew with him that he was just a guy who could come in and make your record sound like a record from an early stage just by playing drums the way he does, you know? So now the Dwarves records start to get really advanced around Must Die, and then they take longer and longer. I mean, that record is just this sprawling, intense thing that goes to every genre, and we have, like, you know, gangster rappers from San Francisco, like San Quinn on it, and I have, like, DJ guys, like... DJ Mars and, and, uh, you know, uh, white rapper guys like Luke Sick. I got, you know, singers from, uh, you know, Nash from Urge Overkill. I got, uh, you know, uh, um, Dexter Holland singing, uh, and, and so more and more like these, these, uh, pop elements come in and these high production elements come in. And, uh, it must die turns out to be the last one that, Eric Valentine does with me. And it's just got every genre and it just sprawls all over the place from, you know, the really uh, weird processed, um, you know, kind of industrial stuff to hip hoppy stuff and then just straight hardcore stuff. And every different guitar player from the band is in it. And you know, there's probably 25 different people on that record.
0: <laughs> it's, a, it's a big lineup of personnel, isn't it? Did How long did it take? Did you spend much time in the studio or did you have to do it over a certain kind of year?
1: I wish I could have spent a lot of time in the studio, but yeah, it happened. Like we'd go in and do the initial tracking and then it would be like a crazy round of editing. And then maybe another couple of days of tracking and vocals and stuff. And then another crazy round of editing. Yes. And then it was just slowly adding stuff up over the over the course of a year and then finally just getting it mixed by Eric. That was the last one that he mixed for me. And I think must die is really my loudest, heaviest, most produced record. Was but, it the, you know, oh, I was sorry. gonna say,
0: did did it did it feel quite an exhausting experience holding that yeah. all together and having yeah, so and many Yeah, It was
1: different- the last time I, I thought maybe I a record a record deal, and people were playing around from major labels and shit but at the end of the day when they realized how old the band was by this point I was you know pushing 40 or whatever late 30s and so it just nobody was going to sign this band especially being as weird as it is and what it looked like but the music was so strong in these different genres in terms of modern rock and and like, you know, sort of white guy hip hop, but also, you know, uh, pop punk and genres that now were regularly hitting at radio. So it was like, hey, we got a song, you know, but there was no group to kind of market, you know. And right. that's when I really sort of learned my last set of lessons about the music industry and what they value, you know. Yes. But you know, it was a fun record to make. And I. And since then, there have been, I guess, another five Five records right there was born again and there was uh invented uh take back the night uh so three more records and then this one we just made the dwarves concept album which is coming out in november
0: blimey that's that's fantastic
1: um, all of the records that have been recorded with this kind of super group of different people that even includes the newest guys like our young drummer who's great and you know he plays like thrash style plays in a band called get a grip he's a singer in that i met him singing for us at you know we, we 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 were doing punk rock bowling and this i see this kid who's like 12 years old singing the words to every song he knows every song i bring him up on stage and he just starts singing the set it was crazy <laughs> and then all these years later he's playing drums in the dwarves now you know, so What's, he's like, you know, again, we always get songwriters. We always get people with their own groups, people who kind of understand what the fuck is we're trying to do. And then we try and make these super sprawling records with all these people.
0: Yes, and, absolutely. You know, because because yeah. just going back slightly, you you start writing novels as well, don't you? Which is kind of quite extraordinary. How does it, How do you manage to get the time and fit all this in?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, a lot of the stuff in the music industry is like hurry up and wait, you know, you're on the road. So you got just sitting around, there's really nothing to do, but you got a show to play that night and you're somewhere, you know, or trying to make a record, you know, if you got big money, you can just sit in a big studio with great people till you're done. But for me, you know, it's more like get in there, get a bunch of shit and then play around with it for a while. So there's a lot of kind of hurry up and wait stuff. And, I like to read a lot. So I like to write a lot. And, uh, you know, I wrote my first novel, which was very kind of was an illustrated novel I did with Mad Mark Rude. And it was very sprawling, surrealistic kind of William Burroughs thing that came out in the late 90s. It was called Arm to the Teeth with Lipstick. Yes. And then after that came out, which was very hard to read, dense and strange. I had these great illustrations. It was kind of psychedelic. I mean, Kind of not for the faint of heart right so i decided after that if i did another book that i would do a more minimalistic approach so then i wrote a book called nina that came out around 2008 2009 and that uh you know was when i wasn't making records or i wasn't making dwarves records it was bef- between must die and born again i was kind of trying to figure out what to do i made a record called candy now which was more garage and rock and you know duets and female vocals and just trying to touch on some different genres that i hadn't done so part of kind of recording different shit was like saying oh i'm gonna do another book you know
0: yes that's amazing so i
1: did that nina book and then my newest book came out just uh last year which was called uh, highland falls and that was the follow-up to nina and again it's a much more minimalistic style straight you know novel literary thing but very transgressive lots of sex drugs death um (laughs) you know and i don't know about the books man i mean i'm very like that's not a world that i'm super comfortable in like i love to write and i love to read so i do it and i want the shit out there But I don't know what the fuck to do with it. I don't know what it is. You know what I mean? Like, I know what to do with records, and I know how to play a show and make a record, you know. The books are kind of an odd thing, you know. But I I really, they're funny. They're fun to read, and they're they're short and interesting, and they just kind of, it's fiction, you know. So most people from bands would write a book, and it's all about when they met Bob Dylan or when they got a gold record or whatever the fuck they did, you know. Yes, but I write about that stuff. I write about you know uh, just fiction, weird dreams, women. Yes,
0: during during that kind of that early O years, what was what was your sort of general state of mind and health like? Was it still kind of hard, rocking, drugs, sex, rock and roll? Was it all the the O years? You know, after two thousand, yeah. Had things changed at that stage?
1: It was hard because you slow down, you know, um, your body slows down. It starts telling you, like, stop doing a bunch of this shit that you were doing. And sometimes times it takes me a few years to kind of listen to my body and figure it out, you know. So I was kind of trying to live the same life with varying degrees of success, you know, Um uh but also in the 90s i discovered kind of things like going to the gym or a different way of eating you know like different things that make you healthier and feel better you know um and so yeah i mean but still my primary motivators you know sex and you know drugs kind of reduced to just smoking weed which was all i really ever enjoyed yes. particularly like the hard drugs was like a trip and it was a crazy thing to do but it wasn't really anything I could sustain and if I wanted to do work or write a book or make a record I couldn't do that stuff I wasn't doing that stuff when we did all the coolest shit that people like for the most part yes it's uh, only like on the road where I would do a lot of drugs and even like and now just so my voice will hold up I can't do any of it I can't even smoke yes. So it's weird it's like I got to a point where in order to do this I couldn't really do drugs in the way that I had or 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 even smoke weed or any of that stuff. Um, fortunately, I never like drinking that much. That really destroys a lot of people and makes it hard to do anything. Yes, so, this is true. I yeah. think the
0: fifties have that effect on all of us. You know, it's like you have that choice, don't you? You can do that, but you can't do that. And if you really like doing that thing, you're going to have to, you know. Yeah. it's quite, So I don't know.
1: Yeah.
0: So, so I don't know the story, but you had an altercation, I believe, with with um, Josh. Is this is this something that kind of has been told a million times and I've just come across it.
1: Um I, I don't know that it was talked a million times. It just was because it involved, you know, a kind of quasi-celebrity asshole, you know, it it got more coverage. Yes. So did but you nobody just... asked me about it. I mean, you know, basically it was just. This guy came up behind me, poured a bunch of booze over my head. When I got up, you know, I was kind of clearing out my eyes. He hit me with a bottle, you know.
0: Bloody hell.
1: It was a pretty straightforwardly kind of fucked up attack. Um, Was it just
0: totally unprovoked?
1: Oh, It depends what you call provoked. I mean, I made fun of him on a record, you know, but that was after he did a bunch of weird shit, you know.
0: Right. <laughs> um,
1: I mean, I'm sure everybody thinks they're right in these kind of situations, but you know, if you can come up short of getting a snoot full of drugs and acting all weird and attacking somebody, then it, that's a good thing. You know.
0: Like, yes, absolutely. Probably be
1: wise if people could manage that. You know, but
0: that would be that would yes, I know. We should all manage. What was the record that you you referenced him on?
1: Um, it's a song called "Massacre" on the Dwarves Must Die
0: right Um,
1: again i mean nick is my buddy from that group and played with me for a long time and he's on that record and so it's more in jokes and laughing at people and fucking with people and you know um at the end of the day you know i'm glad to hang on to most of my friends some of them that get weird wind up going away and and you know yes you know
0: this is this is all very true. So then when you were doing your last couple of albums then, was the lineup of the band changing much at that stage or was it getting much more
1: No, it's it's pretty much, you know, Fresh Prince of Darkness plays guitar and uh, Nick Oliveri plays bass, but Salt Peter came in and sang and wrote songs again, which he had done on the last few records to a certain degree. And uh, yeah, but, you know, Josh Freeze, of course, the amazing drummer, we talked about him, he's played on the last few records. So he's on this one, the Dwarves concept album that's coming out yes. uh, as well as our new drummer Snoopock who's on there as well. So we, you know, yeah, it's kind of a it's it, it's been a fairly steady lineup now for 10 11 12 years you know it's just live guys will come in sometimes we like to do a two guitar thing and then you'll get different people coming in we just did a two guitar lineup where nick oliveri played guitar which was cool and salt peter played bass so that was fun you know there's just all kinds of combinations live that come up depending on who wants to play and who's doing what but everybody was kind of in it from being on the record so everybody was Ready to play, you know.
0: So during lockdown, then is this where you had the idea of the next Dwarfs album, you know, and and the musical direction it was going to go in?
1: Well, part of it was how many songwriters there are in the band. I mean, Fresh Prince had four tunes. Nick Oliveri, right? We call him Rex Everything. He had four tunes. Josh Freeze had a tune, you know, like an instrumental. You know, uh, Andy Now, who's my production partner great singer he had some songs and so we did some things together and i did some things just separate so by the time you turn around there's 30 fucking dwarf songs we had enough to do a long record with 20 songs and then also got a 10 song ep for next year yes did a ton of shit and we recorded it quick like we got 25 drum parts in two sessions along with like 13, 14 bass parts that were keepers, like drums and bass keeper at the same time, just cause Nick and Josh Freeze play so well together. And so there was that, you know, it was like, we can get together and do this shit really quick, especially depending who knows what. And then if I have time to go around and play with vocals for a while, then there's all kinds of time on that. So then, you know, that was like a year ago, February. So then we sat around finger fucking it for another year, until it got to where I wanted it. But that's a lot of songs, 25 newly recorded, five that had sort of been in the can, 30 tracks that you're playing around with. And, you know, it it was just like, don't try this at home, kids, you know? (laughs) Like, we don't have a torturous, hard time in the studio. We have fun in the studio. We just knock it out. Everybody has songs. Everybody kills it. And, you know, I go back and play with it later.
0: Yeah, I hear about
1: other bands and they have a lot of problems in the studio, fucking freaking out, and they don't know what's right and what's wrong. And I think I think they're working in a way that's limiting and not as fun, you know.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: a Lot of fun doing it. So,
0: who's producing this, or who who produced this album?
1: I produce it, right? You know, but my partner in that is a guy named Andy Carpenter, who's you know sings a lot, writes a lot, and he. You know doesn't come out and play live with the band but he like he he did my ralph champagne record which was the solo record i came out with last year i don't know if you got a chance to hear that but it's very it's like a total 180 from the dwarves like whereas the dwarves like goes genre hopping and all the hard genres punk and industrial and you know heavy metal and all that stuff ralph champagne kind of goes genre hopping and stuff like country female vocal duet lounge uh you know maybe more 60s ish stuff 50s ish stuff country stuff trucker songs you know yes. so that andy is just like a super producer guy and he helps the dwarves with a lot of stuff plays guitar sings all that yes but and he doesn't is, play live
0: and this is the one introducing ralph champagne this introducing
1: is... ralph champagne so that was my solo record and that came out in like Nobody knows what the fuck to do with that. I have no idea how I'd play it live. I mean, again, it's Josh Freeze on drums and uh, Tom Ayers, who's a buddy from a band called Persephone's Bees. They were like a uh, kind of pop, uh, uh, pop garage kind of uh, international flavor sort of group from Oakland. So he's a great bass player, guitar player um you know and then we just bring in session guys for keyboards and pedal steel and all the trick instruments i mean we just went nuts you know because again it was it was the pandemic nobody knew what to do and i thought well okay if it's time for 180 degree turn I'll do it this way, you know, because I got Dwarf shit I'm working on, but let me make a solo record that's completely different where anybody who <laughs> hears it goes, there's no way that's a guy from the Dwarves," you know?
0: Yes, absolutely. Did you Do you use the same album. studio or do you, have you built your own studio?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, when Josh Fries is playing drums, a lot of times you just record at his place because that's what he wants to do. So I just do what he wants to do. Um, and fortunately, Andy came to me through Josh So Andy knows Josh's studio, but we also go places like for the Dwarves record, we wanted a full band. So we went to Studio City Sound, which is a great uh, place in like North Hollywood Studio City area. Um, And we just tracked, you know, and again, Josh just leaves a kit set up there. So it's kind of ready to go, you know
0: amazing and 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 did you have a label for your solo album or were you putting it on your own
1: i did it all on the dwarves label which is called greedy um and again i just do that because i don't want anyone telling me when the record's done i want to give people records when they're done so then we distribute it through mvd which is our distribution but i also work with little labels especially if they want to do a 7 inch or whatever yes you know we've done stuff with Punk labels like recess or rad girlfriend, or we do uh, you know, or I just distributed it through MPD with, you know, doing my own label, Greedy, which kind of is a central place where you get all the dwarves records, you know.
0: Is it the case that you you own all the records that you've recorded now? Have you you've got yeah. all the license, the publishing, everything's yours?
1: That's that's right. Yeah, that's which amazing. is kind of rare. Yeah. Yes, it
0: is very rare actually. have you, are you are you discover have you finding that more people are discovering the band who are when you look out at the audience thinking, yeah. the I these are quite young kids,
1: yeah. I mean, we always got a raw deal from marketing and labels, and so no one knew about us. So even if we were cool and we made a cool record with a cool label, it was like they were pushing somebody else. And we just would never, you know, and I mean some of that is just a result of hey, who do people like and who are people gravitating to, but some of it's just who their friends are or what they feel like doing, or yes. whether they thought you were nice to them or not, or whether they want to be associated with your shit too much, or whatever, you know. There's all kinds <laughs> of reasons for it. And and uh, you know, so just having it on my own label allows it all to exist, and then people go, Oh, fuck, I really like that record or that record that completely slipped through the cracks because it was on some label that i mean a lot of times the labels are cool it's just they don't have any money so they can't keep anything in print yeah so i'd rather do it myself and know that it's in print so i would nice. be as little labels but labels you know cool labels burger recess whoever but they couldn't afford to keep in print so it was like well fuck you know yeah, well, i'm gonna cause... have it out i want it in print you know
0: so, kind of in the last couple of months, I did an interview with one of the people who's um, who's running the the Las Vegas punk bowling. No, the Las Vegas Punk Museum, and also the person who's who runs the punk bowling um, event that takes place there. So, you you've been to the museum, haven't you, and um, done talks?
1: Yeah, I did. Uh, I did three days of tours there just last week. It was a lot of fun. It was a real eye opener. You see all kinds of shit and. Uh, got me thinking about a lot of stuff I haven't thought about in a long time. and kind of makes you size stuff up in relation to other people's lives and your lives. And you're like, Whoa, this is strange, strange to be a cultural artifact. You know? Yes. You so do you have
0: any stuff in the museum yourself or?
1: Yeah. They got a pair of my rock guy gloves and a pair of Hughes, uh, you know, mask and, and uh, they got posters by us and different things, you know? Yeah. So it, nice. it was nice to be represented in, in there, but it was really fun to just walk people around, talk to people, and be reminded of things, you know, be reminded of bands I know, people I know, yeah.
0: Have they done a good – would you say – would you recommend the, the museum as a, as a place to visit if you're in Vegas?
1: Oh, yeah, 100%. I would, I would recommend it. You should definitely go there. I mean, look, it's the first six months, so any museum gets better over time. Yes. right now there's a heavy emphasis on west coast what they need over there and i think they'll get it is a lot more midwest stuff you know whether it's replacements or that kind of stuff you know uh, um bands that were you know and i thought that <clears throat> they should hit some of the grunge things like butthole surfers and stuff like that and some of the crossover groups more dri and that type of stuff i mean there were different things that they could hit but you know it's the first six months these were the people that gave them stuff I think a lot of people thought, well shit what do you want a poster fuck what what is this going to be like some posters hanging up but it's really cool you know there's some of Lemmy's ashes in there and Joe Strummer's last bag of weed and just cool shit you know that you wouldn't expect to be (laughs) in there you know and like all kinds of people's jackets because that's part of punk rock people painting their jacket and whatever I mean it's it's really like you know and what freaked me out and I wasn't expecting was just all of the black and white generic flyers for shows. Yes, cuz that really represents the folk side of it. Like, wow, we were all doing this. We were all in different towns. Most people don't remember most of the bands on that poster. Most most people don't know who made the poster and they didn't sign it. You know, so this is just folk art and it's like a folk music movement that I was part of, you know
0: yes it's quite it is quite something actually and do you have um any dates still coming up i think you um the way that americans put the the year the month and the date is slightly different to the uk so have you just have you i know so annoying um have you just played some dates or have you got dates coming?
1: We just played a bunch of dates in Europe, and then we uh, just did a few dates, Southern California and Arizona. We still got three shows coming up in August. Um, San Diego, Los Angeles, and uh, Recess Records is doing a little festival thing in San Pedro. Right. So, um, that uh, That's what's happening. Um, and we're playing Punk in the Park in November, which is always a cool Festival, a lot of groups on that, Pennywise and the Bronx and different, uh, different cool bands playing that. And uh, yeah, you know, we'll have a bunch of stuff through the fall when the record comes out. The record's coming out around Halloween for uh, the Dwarves concept album. So, you know, there'll be a bunch of shows. We're playing with Zeke up up north uh, around New Year's and going to do New Year's in San Francisco. That'll be wild. So. yes (laughs) yes yeah, really <laughs> so, so is
0: the secret to your longevity and your creative process good food and keeping fit
1: yeah sex and food absolutely
0: sex, sex food and and going, still going to the gym <laughs> or have you given the gym a
1: miss oh, now? wait that's what's keeping me fat and senile i remember oh. <laughs> um yeah uh <laughs> just smoking a little herb and uh writing another song and talking to somebody and making something cool i mean you just keep working you don't stop you know yes does it doesn't stop won't stop is the no. simple uh, uh formula you know? so do
0: you feel like your creative process is a lot different now than it was in the early years do you feel a much yeah more... i don't
1: i don't write songs in the same way that i used to i kind of come upon stuff more now i, I feel like if I just pick up a guitar and write a song, I've sort of already written that song. So I I'll, I write a few of those, but for the most part, I just kind of hunt and gather, you know, grab a part here and part there from different people who want to write and make things out of it, make yes. things out of samples. and Sort you know, of a bit just...
0: more of the, the David Bowie, William Burroughs cut and paste.
1: <laughs> Brian Geison. Yeah, exactly. Yes.
0: Do you quite enjoy, does it, over the years and decades, does it really help having different members to play with, you know, different musicians, you know, as you enter the sort of recording process? Yeah,
1: hugely, especially because they're more excited about things, you know. It's hard to keep a huge level of excitement all by yourself. You know, you need some people to bounce it off, and they're excited, you're excited, and you have some fun with it, you know. Yes. Um, And,
0: And did your parents get to see you play live?
1: They did see a few shows later on, yeah, once they were in their 70s and they were retired, uh, they came out to a couple of shows when they were living in the area. Excellent. They had a lot of fun with it. My mom felt it was very exciting. My dad didn't quite get it musically, you know. He couldn't quite grasp where it was coming from, you know, but it's it's more of a body feeling, you know.
0: Yes, absolutely. If you, if you could have whispered something to your 16-year-old self starting out, even if that person ignored you, was is there anything in particular you would have said, oh, yes, I would have said this to them?
1: Yes, I would have said, just relax. Just relax.
0: It will all be okay.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, There's
1: nothing that... you can do about it anyway, so just calm the fuck down.
0: <laughs> well, that's good. Well, look, it sounds fantastic. It sounds like you're in a really amazing place.
1: You know, I'm trying to be, I'm trying to enjoy my life and make good art and, uh, you know, get, use up the time I got left, you know, and it, it seems to be going pretty well.
0: Yes, well, that's fantastic. So what do you go as, your name? Who do you, because I kind of was like, oh, God, I'm getting confused who, <laughs> so who, who do you prefer being, what do you prefer being called, by the way?
1: Well, most people call me Blag. Yes. Blag Ripper, Blag Jesus, Black History Month, you know, just blag
0: <laughs> blag yeah. so blag is good
1: blag is good
0: blag is good that's that's what we need and well look thank you ever so much this has all been amazing and um i've loved listening to the music so and um yes the solo album especially it's a good one it's a well, nice... bless
1: you man tell me tell me your name tell me what this whole thing is i can't i don't even remember it was like ch385
0: oh yeah C- five, C- c80 c86 was a cassette that came out with the new musical express in 1986 it had 22 tracks and it was um yeah kind of mostly i don't D-86. know
1: 86 wow that's obscure good for you
0: yes and i'm david eastor from norwich the uk and um yeah
1: norwich uh, now Nor- explain this to me Yes. You've got Sandwich, where you pronounce the witch. Then you've got Greenwich, where you just leave the W out. Yes. Explain Norwich to me.
0: Norwich. Uh, yes, because if you, because most people... Where put does the, w-
1: the I, the D, the G, I mean, the I is in there. Where, where does the D and the G and the E come in? <laughs> Why is it Norwich?
0: Nor Norwich, um, I don't know. is just... it
1: just Norwich, like Greenwich,
0: yes, so right? um, yes, absolutely. It drives
1: no- me crazy. Norwich, they say Norwich <laughs> have you right? been to
0: yes, I, I have to say you you pronounce it better than the locals do Have you been <laughs> to Nor- Norwich
1: Norwich, connecticut Norwich Norwich,
0: Norwich Have you been to Norwich in the u k?
1: yes absolutely
0: oh what did you were you playing a gig or you
1: i I can't remember but i know i was there to to do something maybe it was just to pick something up what is norwich near is that like the nottingham scene or something what is it
0: no it's kind of uh, if anything it's on the north norfolk it's uh, north it's in norfolk it's the nearest bit that's it's the bit that sticks out at the uk Face in Europe, and um, it's a little bit of a bulge. So it's a hundred miles north of London. So a little um, bit of
1: a bulge. Now, wasn't that the name of your solo album?
0: <laughs> no, that's my medical condition. No, it's just it's the bit that it's nearest Europe. So you got London, you go straight up hundred miles, and slightly to the right, and then you'll come to Norwich. There's Ipswich, there's Colchester, Ipswich, Norwich. That sort of gig. So there Ipswich. you go ipswich i know you'd hate to there's a place on the coast which is spelt happiesburg but it's pronounced hayesborough so anyway. hayesborough
1: hayesborough yes. well, there's four key right when four you keep key. going up
0: yes so four key so have you played the uk much in your, your life
1: yeah oh absolutely yeah i mean we do the best in the big towns i mean london and Birmingham and, and Manchester, you know. Um, the other ones are kind of hit and miss for us, but we've done everything, Newcastle, Bristol. Um, and, yeah, we even made it up for a weird surf thing in one of the keys there. It wasn't right. Torquay, but it was one of the keys. I know Torquay from Faulty Towers. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes it's but yeah odd. bud well it was a pleasure speaking to you yeah
0: well no it's been fantastic though and i'll when i when i put the um put it out i'll, I'll i can always send you the link and then you can always yeah, use buddy. it on your seat you know social media platform sites and Absolutely. all that kind of stuff
1: but look have a great day black you too thanks for talking to me
0: yeah well thank you as well for your time anyway have a lovely day bye-bye bye-bye I'm, look i'm gonna hit the end as um jim Morrison said. Bye. And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. I know, so classy. Anyway, that was me in conversation with Black from The Dwarfs. And also, as I mentioned, he has a very good, amazing solo album that came out 2022, um, in, uh, titled Introducing Ralph Champagne. This has been The C86 Show. I'm David E. So if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. Also, all these have been archived interviews, that is. So you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. It's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.